In our last GBC podcast, we watched and talked about some amazing stories we have on the website. So today we thought we would continue in that vein, only this time we'll make it World War II. Now we have got so many great, remarkable stories from people that would always say to me, I have nothing interesting to say. And then of course they always shock the heck out of us with their stories. But today we'll just focus on a couple of the World War II stories from the long list we have. So we invite you to go to the site sometime, sit down and really get into it and you're gonna hear some remarkable things from uh, the men and women that were in World War II. First, I'm gonna ask you to go to the website uh, um, a little bit later today and watch one of the uh, featured stories. This is only 20 minutes long for the whole video, so we didn't pull a piece out of it to show today. So I just want you to go to uh, up on the menu bar, up to the documentaries, click on it, then click on featured films, and then go to I Survived the Holocaust and watch that full 20-minute story, uh, I Survived the Holocaust, Mary Ann's story. It's just a remarkable tale of two women, their struggle in the camps, and then reuniting some 40 years later in the United States. It's an amazing story. We did it about 25 years ago. And boy, did I look young then <laughs> when I uh, hosted that uh, documentary. But anyway, that's a complete another story. Let's start today first with a, uh, a short feature from George Fines. George was in World War II and he's in our Lest We Forget documentary. In the outtakes, the producer back then didn't even put this little story in the video, but I love it. It's a story of, of life at that time during World War II. So let's take a listen to George. Uh, when we were under bombardment in <coughs> New Guinea, I got cut on the hand, and uh, that night I woke up with a fever of about 104. The doctor of the squadron was in the tent with me. He said, George, you'll be all right. I'll take you to the hospital in the morning. So we waited till the morning, and I was getting more and more feverish. The red streaks were beginning to go up, up, my, up, yeah. up my arm. And the doctor looks at me, his son, he says, You've got septicemia. That's blood poisoning. I says, well, do something for me. He says, we can't. We don't have anything. How about sulfur? Won't touch it. He said, what should I do? Pray. He says, pray. Yeah. And as I walked pray. away, he said, just one minute. I just happened to think of something. We just got a, tri a trial shipment. Uh, a new uh, antibiotic. If you want to try it, be glad to try it on it. He says, give it to me. So he gave me a shot. In the rear end, I went to bed that night, woke up the next morning, the fever was down, oh. the red streaks had gone, and when the doctor came around to find out how I was doing, he says, how are you? I says, I'm, I'm much better. Says, what was that stuff? He says, that's a new drug we're trying out called penicillin. Moving on, we're going to talk about some more real people, not just soldiers, but real people during that time. One was Mickey Snedeker. Mickey wasn't Jewish, but she was put in the concentration camps because they found her working for the underground in Yugoslavia. She was in Belgrade when Germany overran her city. She talks about it. And then when the war ended, they were overrun again by the Russians. Mickey had quite a tale to tell. Let's listen to Mickey. It was in Yugoslavia when the Germans occupied it. What, what do you remember? What was that like? 
terrible, is when the Germans first occupied Belgrade, before they even did, the Stukas airplanes shooting people in the streets with their machine guns. Everybody was trying to leave and go into the countryside. The first thing they did was gather the Jewish people and put them in a fairgrounds. One of my aunts married a Jewish man. He was forced to wear the star. Mm -hmm. And my mother got an idea. Since the Jewish people had to walk on one side and the other population on the other side of the pontoons, she would fill my school bag full of food, and I was to just drop it in front of the Jewish people. The Germans who made I, my father move back to Austria. So now the family has to leave. We all had to move to Vienna. We went to the, uh, what they call, Austrian mo youth movement. Mm -hmm. We did some things that were certainly not allowed to be done, and we got caught and they threw us into trucks and put us in concentration camp. We stayed there for about a month and a half, just before the war ended. And they called us uh, the orphan, orphan, which means the victims of the Nazi oppression. We were just taken over to Austria by the, German, by the German people and became part of Germany. We were let go when the war was, so, so to say, over. And the Germans withdrew, but they were still fighting Russia. Right. There was still war going on. And uh, Austria, of course, was still Germany at that time. And you had to walk in the store. You had to say, Heil Hitler. If you don't say it, you know, don't come in. And how long were you in the camps? About a month and a half. And your folks had no clue where they you were? They had no clue where we were. They so tried. But you could only try so much because right. you start inquiring about somebody that's in a jail or something, you end up there too. Well, I bet your folks were glad to see you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then soon after that, the Russians came in. The Russians all of a sudden started giving out food and they told people to come and help themselves that they will, and they would be pouring out soup into your dish that you brought with you. And what they did is they separated all the men and kept the woman. And do you know what happened to them? Do I have to tell you? We can imagine. They used to come and inspect the building, all the apartments, every day. A new group of Russians would come in and they would take everything out of the drawer and out of the closet and take what they want to take. Every time they left, we would pick up and fold everything, put it back in the drawers. Until one day, an officer came with a bunch of them and he told my mother, don't put anything away. Once they see that it's been through already, mm -hmm. They won't bother you. They'll just walk through and go out. And that's exactly what happened. Now let's move on to Prague, Czechoslovakia. I just sat dumbfounded when Rosina was telling me her story when I was taping her several years ago. She, as a young child, had to escape Czechoslovakia. She wound up in the United States, got married, had children. It took her, I believe, 12 years before she was able to reconnect with her family back in Czechoslovakia. They, they just wouldn't let phone calls go back in. 
and she was afraid to try to sneak back into the country. So it took 12 years. Her story is amazing on how she reached her parents back in Czechoslovakia. Here is a short snippet of Rosina's story about eight or nine when the Germans walked in. That's when we were occupied by Germany. But what were your parents telling you guys? Well, they weren't telling us too much because they were afraid. Everything was always reported. And we were called the protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. And we had a, what we called a puppet government. Hitler was the one who gave all the orders. You had to prove during the German occupation uh, to the church, uh, third generation that you were Aryans, that you didn't have any Jewish uh, background. Right. Anybody who had, had to wear the uh, yellow star. Uh, food was rationed because everything went to the front, to the soldiers. Now, when the war did come to an end, yeah, what happened? The 5th of May, um, I somehow remember building the barricades. People were digging out the cobblestones and putting them uh, on the end of the streets so they could not come in. We were pushing them all out. I remember them uh, running through Prague with their hands up saying, I'm not German, I'm not German. We went through the period that um, the people were coming back from the concentration camps. And that was when people were very angry when they saw how the people looked. When the communists took over, they never wanted the people to leave. In February uh, 1948, the students, which I was among them, were making demonstration against the government. At that time, they picked us up, marked us as uh, unreliable. They put me to work in an office. I was lucky. When they really took over in 1948, when the government right, was right. communist, um, then I talked to some students, and uh, we decided in a group that we would escape. We got about three of us together. One was an older man, and one was a student, uh, and me. And they told me that they're leaving and when, which date, and that I can't say anything to my parents, and I can't take anything with me, only what I had on. One night, I packed up. I threw my things, little things, out of the window, so um, they were waiting downstairs, and um, put couple of uh, changes of clothes at me and a fur coat because it was uh, winter and we had to go through the mountains and we took a train as close as we could and then from there we walked over through the mountains until we uh, reached Germany. I also remember leaving a letter for my parents. Uh, and telling them, one, where I went and what I did, and one, that they could turn to the authorities. So how long was it before you communicated with your parents? Eleven years. They didn't allow any mail to so, Czechoslovakia, okay. and none could go out. Everything was censored. No there telephones? Were, they would not let you telephone. You can't imagine it. The tele, it was all cut off. 
What was that phone call 11 years after you left the house like? Very emotional. Moving on, we're going to go to my dad. He was a bombardier in World War II over Japan. He sat in that glass nose of the B-29s that we've all seen those pictures of. You know, the B-29, the Flying Fortress, this huge aircraft for that time. He was telling the story of the B-29s and how many we actually lost in the war, and not all of them because they were shot down. Here's my dad's story. How did you guys film those airplanes? The planes that we flew overseas, we uh, lost for all reasons. Combat, uh, malfunctions, uh, um, bad takeoffs, landings. We lost 520 planes. In the States, in training, where there was no combat, they lost 260 planes in training. And those were losses where almost everybody on board were killed. So that was about another 2,600 people died in training. So unbeknownst to me, these planes had a lot of problems. An interesting story my dad told me was on their very first mission, they were flying back uh, to Saipan and they thought they were going to run out of gas and they wanted to ditch the plane. And they called in to say the situation. They were told, you can't ditch a million dollar piece of equipment. You're going to stay on that plane. And what you're going to do is check in with us every 50 miles and we'll make sure one of the ships in the sea will know where you guys are in case they have to go pick you up. You're only going to ditch when you run out of gas. So they kept flying and every 50 miles they checked in. And that plane made it back. They landed and when they hit the runway, they ran out of gas. The engineer had miscalculated. They had enough gas to literally just get back. Uh, so they made, made it back. But I just thought that was always so fascinating that the most important thing was can't ditch the aircraft because it was a million dollar piece of equipment. It was the biggest plane we had back then. What do planes cost now? I think it's a little bit more than a million dollars. Well, here's another story from my dad that he told us. That he ran into a Japanese couple, about my age, people that were born after the war. But they told my dad where they were from, and he goes, oh, I bombed that area in World War II. And they were going, what war? Here's that story. About years later, I mean, just recently, you ran into some Japanese people that were about my age? Yep. Tell me, tell me that story. I, I asked her where she was from, and uh, she told me she was from some suburb of uh, Tokyo. And I told her I had uh, bombed the place uh, 50 some years ago. And she looked at me like I was crazy. What do you mean you bombed the place? I says, there was a war going on. I says, and we bombed Japan. I says, I bombed Tokyo, I bombed Yokohama, I bombed Kobe, Osaka, Nagoya. These are all the big cities. And she says, she looked at me and says, when did this all happen? I says, about in the 1940s. She never heard of it. I says, they didn't teach you this in school? He says, no. 
I said, it's kind of hard to believe, that, you know, about an atom bomb that was dropped. Why, why wouldn't you know about this? It was, it was never in their history books. She invited me back for when her husband was going to be there to, so I could show him some pictures because they couldn't believe it. But I, I went back and showed it to him. And when you show them the pictures, what did they say? They, they, they were in awe. They couldn't believe it, that's all. So when they were younger and this was going on, were they just not in areas that were bombed? or They weren't born. Oh, they weren't born yet. Okay. Yeah. So their, their parents, nobody ever told them about it? This was, it was just removed from all... Uh... Well, uh, it's like a lot of uh, history hasn't shown up in our history books in this country. So uh, I guess uh, there are certain things that they kept out of their history books. Let's end today with a gentleman, Fisk Hanley. Fisk also flew on the B-29s. His plane was shot down uh, just outside of Japan during the war. He was captured, he survived, and he was captured and put in a prisoner of war camp. And what made this really remarkable was one day, several weeks later, he's hearing his name called. And he looked up, and one of the prisoners that they were just bringing into the, uh, into the camp was a kid he grew up with from down his street. Here's Fisk. My wing, the 313th, was designated to mine the Shimonoseki Straits, which is the main Japanese waterway. No flak and no fighters predicted. Wrong. The Japanese had broken our coast. Of course, they're shooting at us. I guess three, three and four on fire. The gunners on intercom said one and two are on fire. Heavy flames and smoke came into the forward cabin and I bailed out. I was over a big rice paddy, about a couple of hundred civilian men, women, and children. Uh, they came in and proceeded to kill me. Japanese policemen and saved me. One other prisoner, it turned out is my co-pilot, Al Andrews. He and all I were the only survivors. And with that, in that mining mission, only two airplanes got shot down. The other crew, all 11 of them, were captured. We were special prisoners, not POWs. We were to be tried and executed for war crimes, killing innocent women and children. So we had no no hope. And the prison got full. We had about uh, 63 prisoners, American prisoners in there. Uh, toward the end of April, the guards came in in the middle of the night and took 62 prisoners, Americans, out of this prison somewhere. They left two of us behind, a fellow named Hanks from Sweetwater, Texas, Hanley, H-A-N-H-A-N. We were the only two left in that prison. These people had been put in Tokyo military prison, bombing raids set it on fire. The Japanese murdered all 62 of them. So the good Lord looked after me, saved me and Hanks. But more air raids, more people coming in. The prison filled up in my little cell, which had eight prisoners in there. One of them sitting right across from me. And he kept looking at me in the dark. It was dark, had a little bit of light up there. He said, uh, I think I know you. I said, oh, did you go to North Texas Agricultural College? I said, yeah. Is your name Fisk Hanley? I said, yeah. How did you know? Hell, I'm Bill Grounds, your buddy from there. I didn't recognize him. 
the Japanese, uh, so he came back after August the 6th and said, you people did a real bad thing. You dropped one bomb and you wiped out one of our cities. What's that? Hmm. We don't know what an atomic bomb was. After the ninth, that was uh, Hiroshima. Nagasaki got hit, said another city, did it again. Second bomb. They saved our lives. Because uh, the order out of Imperial Japanese headquarters, when the invasion took place, execute all Allied prisoners, over 300,000. On the 15th of August, took us out to an island, which is Camp Amori, a prison camp. They had about six machine guns set up over there. We're out in the water, bathed, first bath I'd had in six months. Machine guns, when you get through and get come up on land, they're going to machine gun all of you. They didn't do it. <laughs> he broke the order because he knew he'd get in trouble with the Americans when they came oh, in. There were about 600 Allied prisoners there from all over. And on the 28th of August, a Marine fighter flew over and dropped a wrench, note on there, said, tomorrow you will be liberated. Mid-afternoon, six landing craft came in with the American flag flying. Most beautiful sight I'll ever seen. We have got so many great stories to get back to, and we will get back to these stories from time to time. We hope you enjoyed them today. Share and like us on all the social media. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at CEN on the end, and I'm sure Cindy is putting it up on the screen for you to see all the social media. I'm Scott Farber. Have a great day. We'll see you next time. So long, everyone.